You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a retired Green Beret who has turned his career into an author, a public speaker, a TV, radio, podcast platforms. You've seen him and heard him everywhere. We'll get to him coming up in just a moment. But first, our normal announcements. As always, as I remind you guys, holidays coming up. You're going to do some Amazon shopping. Please go to HazardGround.com first and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You'll do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then I'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. Great way for you guys to help out veterans charities all across America just by doing some Amazon shopping and just by going to hazardground.com. First, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hazardground at hazardground podcast. And as well, continue to leave us five-star reviews wherever you get your podcast. Give us a thumbs up. Uh, also, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Smash the like button there and the subscribe button. We appreciate you guys watching and listening to all of the shows here. Help spread the word of the Hazard Ground community. We certainly want to continue to tell great stories, and we need your help to do it. So make sure you guys let a friend know. Follow us on social media. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. And, of course, uh, leave us a five-star rating uh, wherever you get your podcast, Apple reviews, all that stuff helps us over, over, and over again. Uh, appreciate you guys doing all that as you do each and every week. And this week's guest is a retired Army lieutenant colonel and a former Green Beret who spent about 18 of his nearly 23 years in special operations. Uh, he has a total of three combat deployments overseas, Afghanistan, other places around the world. He's the author of the best-selling book called Operation Pineapple Express, he also has authored other books, Game Changers, Going Local to Defeat Violent Extremists. He has been on TV, radio, podcasts as well. He's founded two nonprofits, Task Force Pineapple and The Hero's Journey. And he also has founded his own leadership company called Rooftop Leadership, a consulting and training company that shares rapport building skills that he learned in the Army to help make human connections better uh, in business and beyond. He is Scott Mann joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Scott, welcome. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on, man. No, no problem. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I came across your your profile on LinkedIn, and I started to realize, you know, the reach that you had in the veteran community. And then I started doing some more research on your story and everything that you've done in your military career. And it's uh, look, it's impressive. Um, you know, you've built you've built quite the uh, for lack of a better term, little mini empire empire after your your military career is over. But obviously, you get all those roots from the beginning uh, of your time in the military. So congratulations on all the success, continued success going forward. Uh, and and you know. I think that when I come across folks like you who have parlayed their their military careers into high level, high performing civilian careers, it's always just that hope that we always give veterans who are trying to transition, right? Yeah, in fact, I'm giving a talk tonight in uh, Louisville about that very thing. It's a vet's night out, and we're, and that's what we're going to be talking about is is you know what does it look like after you hang up the uniform and the desert boots, and and how do you stay? How do you continue to play at a high level? You know, because I think that's one of the biggest and my transition was terrible. And uh, it it took a decade to, you know, pull my ass out of that and get back to a level of performance that I was used to as a Green Beret. So um, anything that I can do that can help other veterans and military family members not do that is where I spend a lot of my time. No. Yeah. And again, uh, I'm I'm at that point, you know, I've got uh, almost geez, 25 years in. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that in the back half with the guard and the reserves, but, you know, yeah. I always kind of fear the day where I have to hang it up. You know, there's that separation of, uh, and I say this repeatedly, I've spent more of my life in a uniform than out. 
right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, there, there's not an adult life I know without putting that uniform on at a minimum, at least once a month uh, and going somewhere to do something. And, uh, you know, that, 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 that disconnection is sort of scary, right? It, like it really is. Yeah, it really is. I mean, what you just said, I think really speaks to a lot of people. Um, it certainly does to me is that it's what you've known your whole adult life. Now just think about that for a second. Like, and what you've known is a world that most of the country that you're going into doesn't know. It's what they see in the movies. It's what they see. It's really why I, I think I became a storyteller and I wrote a play as well, because I wanted civilians to understand that crazy world that less than 1% of veterans and their families live in. And then you think about the fact, Mark, like you said, I think 25 years, man, that's a long time to do anything, but it's sure as hell a long time to be under a rucksack. Right. Sure. And, and by the way, I did forget to mention the play called last out. You did it with the Gary Sinise foundation. You guys just wrapped out, uh, wrapped up uh, uh, your production of it and everything. So we'll, we'll get to that coming up. But again, last out was the name of the play uh, with the Gary Sinise foundation. So uh, we'll get that, uh, but start back at the beginning for me here, Scott, um, how and why, and when did you join the army? I uh, came in the army, you know, I did ROTC. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I wanted to be a team leader in SF. I'd met a Green Beret when I was 14 in a little logging town in Mount Ida, Arkansas. And he was a detachment commander in fifth special forces group. And the dude just, I mean, he was such a inspiration to me that everything I, not only did I want to be SF, I built my, my career path around what he had done. So I went through ROTC at central Arkansas and then gra- graduated and commissioned and came in the army, I think in 91. And then did kind of the, you know, went to Panama right out of the gate and um, the, back when we had troops down there and, and spent, um, I don't know, four, four and a half years there before I was able to go try out to be a Green Beret. And that's, uh, that's when I tried out was 95 and, and never looked back. I mean, I have to wonder, what about meeting a Green Beret when you were a kid sort of drew you in? You know, I mean, because look, I did ROTC too, but I, I, I'm not bashful about this or shy about it. Like, I only did it as a means to an end when I first signed up. I wanted to pay for college, right? And I needed mm-hmm. to do it. Like, there was nothing about the Army as a kid for me that attracted me to it. So I'm always curious, the mental makeup of, like, a 13 or 14-year-old looks at that and goes, that's what I want to be. Because growing up, for me, all I ever wanted to do was play shortstop, right? Like, I just wanted to be a baseball player. That was like yeah. that. When you saw the military guy, that's what I saw when I saw athletes. I'm like, that's what I want yeah. to do. That's how my yep. youngest son, Braden, is. He plays college balls, middle infielder, and he's just like that. That's That's all he's ever wanted to do. Right. was play middle infield and but i i say it was like that for me i mean i you know i've run across in in my years guys who met somebody that was a seal or met somebody that was a fighter pilot and it changed them i was one of those guys i've also met lots of dudes and i'm sure you have too that had pre-service trauma and it led them to want to be a protector right and then i've had some buddies that just like i have no idea how i got here but i'm here and i love it Whatever. And, but for me, yeah, I, I met this dude. Um, his name was Mark Harrell. Uh, he was an SF captain at the time. And, you know, I'm going to school in a town of like a thousand people. Like we didn't even have a stoplight. And, and so anybody that comes from out of town is, is interesting, but this guy was beyond interesting because he was, he was, he was so different. And, and when he, he actually, I was a run of a kid, man. And, and pretty, um, I was always on the outside looking in, in my life, moved a lot and just didn't really fit in. And this guy took the time to talk to me about SF and what they were about. And 
he was probably pulling some SF shit on me at the time, but like it, it, it really landed with me when, when he, especially talking about working with indigenous people and in faraway places and speaking the language, man, that, that just sounded so cool to me. And it landed at 14. Like there was never anything else in my life. And again, I equate it to you playing short, wanting to play shortstop. It was that grand granular for me. All right. So uh, after you finish RTC and get commissioned, I assume you, you go infantry. No. What do you think I went? Take a guess. Uh, something in the logistics world then. Yep. Quartermaster. Ah, ordinance. Yeah. There you go. See <laughs> us, us logistics guys still have a place. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I wanted infantry. It didn't work out. Um, I, I was pretty upset about it. I had a really good Sergeant major in ROTC it was an SF Sergeant major. And he was like, look, you're going to get plenty of infantry training. Um, go learn how, go learn logistics because that's what will end your career or make your career as an SF officer. When you, when you start <laughs> taking care of guys and boy, was he right. And, um, so I, I uh, used it as an opportunity to learn logistics and how to, and how to manage resources. And it worked out, it worked out really well. Now I did go to ranger school as a second Lieutenant quartermaster, and I'm not sure that was well advised. Um, but I did, and I, I somehow made it through and, <laughs> but that, that, uh, yeah, that was, that was definitely a traumatic experience. Why? The, well, you know, they, they knew I was a second Lieutenant quartermaster and they made that a very long nine weeks. Um, and, and it, it, it was at least in the beginning, I, I would say once I got into, you know, mountain phase and kind of started, uh, doing my thing and demonstrating that I could perform, it was fine. But the first few weeks, it was really painful. Like they singled me out big time. Cause it was a pretty, you know, it was kind of a novelty. There were not a lot of logisticians, sure. second lieutenants in the, in the class. Um, and I got recycled, I think twice <laughs> before I even got out of Benning. Uh, so it was a real test to just, um, see if I would stay, I think. Makes sense. Uh, when you pin that Ranger tab on, is that like a huge moment of pride for you? Or is it one of those things where you looked at it and was like, uh, you know, I'm just glad it's over or what? I'll never forget it. It was, it was very much a moment of pride. My mom, my mom and dad were there. Um, and you know, it was, I, but you know why it was for me though, Mark, it was, it was, yes, the course was hard. But um, I remember I got recycled the first time and I spent like seven weeks in the gulag. It was a really long, uh, the gulag, you know, the holding area for candidates that don't, don't make it, but want to try again. And they let me stay. Um, and I remember, and what you do in the gulag is you basically go on work detail every single day. You go do PT and then you go pick up pine cones around Fort Benning and, you know, paint stuff and, uh, do repairs around the, the range of training battalion. Well, I remember like I had been in the gulag so long that I was pulling weeds in the worm pit where they make you, you know, the obstacle course. And I hear this singing coming down the road, you know, to be an airborne ranger is the mark of a man. And it's like these guys like singing out, man. And I look up and it's my friggin' original class that, uh, I had started with and I'm there bent over in the worm pit pulling weeds and I just, I can remember the tears running down my face. Like I just didn't want them to see me. I didn't, you know, and I wanted to quit so bad. I just wanted to say, screw this man. I'm out. Uh, and somehow I stayed, you know, somehow I managed to put, put myself through it again. And that was what I remembered when I put that tab on, cause it was 100 yards away on that same field where my mom pinned my tab on me. And, and, you know, that was what I was thinking about was I'm really glad I stayed. That's awesome. Like I, I, that's under, 
He'll probably tell me a lot of other stuff, but I'll probably look at that as awesome, as the most awesome thing. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've said this several times, you know, like if I could go back and do anything over again in my military career, I'd, I would go be a lieutenant again because I was, I was just not in the right mindset, you know, and the yeah. fact that you're so young and so aware and so willing to not walk away, I think is a testament. And we talk about building a foundation, you know, that's the foundation for what shapes the rest of your career. I, I from the outside looking in, I don't think you can underscore that, you know, like yeah. you may have a different opinion on it, but I, I look at that as the, the, the biggest foundational piece of the rest of your career. I, I agree a hundred percent. A hundred percent. And and I don't want to make it sound like I was, you know, so resolute. I mean, this was back when they had pay phones and, you know, every time I got a chance to call my dad, I was talking to him and just, just, you know, really upset and wondering what the hell am I doing here? And, you know, it was him talking to me into staying. It was always something that was just enough to keep me hanging around, you know, and, and that's kind of been my life, honestly, is, you know, I, I generally, um, step in it or, or struggle with whatever, but I find a way to stick around because, you know, that's how things have happened for me is just sticking around. And, and that was, you know, at the time I had no idea what I was doing, but it, that getting that Ranger tab mark was the first, I think for me, true affirmation. It's like, okay, that's what happens when you stick around. Yeah. And, and look, and I think the other part of this in the big picture, at least, you know, that's humanity, man. Like it's okay yeah. to have those feelings of fear and wanting to quit. And yeah. you know, look, I, I, hundreds of people have been on this show. And we talk about this stuff a lot, you know, cause I asked the question, were you scared? You know, how'd you feel? Like, what were you thinking? You know? And, and because I, I don't assume one, everybody thinks the same and the two green berets can look at the same thing completely different. Just like two seals can just like two regular army soldiers can, right. Yeah. Two, two, two airmen can, it's just, you know, your own individual perspective and, and, and you know, uh, experience, belies how you approach any given situation. And so, you know, I, I don't, I think the humanity of that whole moment to me is, is, you know, what, what sticks out, you know, like it, the fear and the emotion and the, and the wanting to quit and all that stuff are regular things. And whether people vocalize them and say, no, I wasn't scared or no, I didn't want to quit and everything else. What really was going on in their heart and their head, ultimately the only they know. And the fact that you're willing to acknowledge it, I think, you know, just speaks volumes, you know, about who you are and, and just, you know, what you're willing to, to, you know, face within yourself. And that's, again, I think that's foundational. I, I appreciate that. And I think that what you brought up just now about struggle, you know, Daniel Coyle, you know, I love his work in, in the little book of talent. You know, he says struggle is a biological necessity. It's a, you know, it's something it's a universal for all humans. Yeah. And, and for some reason in this world, we just, we just don't talk about struggle at all. We don't integrate struggle into what we do, but if you think about it, it's at the heart of every single thing that we do that has any meaning. And, you know, going back to transition, I think that struggle is just as much a part of transition as it is a part of, you know, going to ranger school or whatever else we did when we wore the uniform. Uh, side note, I will add this much about when we talk about struggle in today's day and age. The difference is between what you did and others like you did and what happens today. When we when you guys went through struggle, the locomotive pulling the train, the lead dog pulling the sled was you individually making a choice to overcome struggle. Now what happens when we talk about struggle today, it's somebody help me, somebody come rescue me, somebody pull oh, me out, yeah. somebody save me. And the difference is, is that struggle gets pushed on other people, whereas the struggle doesn't remain internal, or at least we're not the ones asked to take the first step, right? Like, yeah. uh, that's the difference between struggle with you did and others like you and struggle today. I think both of them are worthy of being talked about. 
uh, and not everybody has the ability to pick themselves up, but th- those who do should uh, pick themselves up first. But yeah, could, yeah, uh, yeah. Probably yeah, a whole I, different podcast in and of itself. <laughs> probably. I've just, I just, I, I agree with you. I think in, in the reference that I'm making here is, is, is in that internal biological. Yes, right. Um, exactly. That's what I was picking up on. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the part of it that matters. All right. So you get through Ranger School. Now you mentioned Panama. Um, how'd you end up there? Because this is Operation Just Cause back in 1989. I had just ended. It had just ended. And and so it was really interesting time to be in Panama because, you know, it was right on the heels of Just Cause. And while that was a well-executed operation, boy, did we make a mess in that country, man. I mean, that was it was a mess, uh, you know, and that's what happens after a war, right? But it was it was. It was that. It was the Operation Promote Liberty, um, which was the kind of the recovery phase four type operations that was going on when I got there as a, as a young lieutenant. And and of course, right around the corner, 1999 was the handover of the canal. So I, I actually asked for that assignment, Mark, because I already knew I wanted to be a seventh group guy. Um, I had already studied the groups and I knew that Latin America was just, it, to uh. me, it was very appealing. Did you speak Spanish or anything or no? I, I, I did some, you know, I took Spanish in college. I did okay with it. Um, I studied Spanish um, once I got down there a lot because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be selected for seventh group. And um, I had some really good NCOs that mentored me and they were like, hey, study as much Spanish as you can. And, um, and I did. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, that was the cool thing about being in Panama was, you know, the girls spoke English and Spanish. And so you, you learned the language really fast. Yeah, there you go. Uh, n- nothing like motivation to get you to yeah. learn. Right. Um, so what is the one thing you took away from Panama that you felt was really sort of, um, you know, shaping in the rest of your career, at least, the re- you know, other than the tie to SF and seventh group, was there anything about that, that trip that you learned that you felt like was something that stays with you? Oh, dude, what a great question. You know what, for me, it was, um, and I don't know why this came to me so quickly, but it was it was what I wrote in, in Game Changers, which is go local or go home. It, it really it really taught me very early the, because I lived off post. I lived in downtown Panama City. I did a lot of work in the interior. Uh, it just, it, sh- it just showed me the power of local context, of getting to know people, building relationships and seeing how, people live in these places that you deploy to. Cause I was there for three and a half years. I, I really built some very deep bonds and ties that I leveraged all the way up until I was a friggin' Lieutenant Colonel. Um, but it, it really exposed me, Mark, in a very cool way to the power of local immersion. And I, it, 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 it was never lost on me from that point on. Like it really became part and parcel of how I navigated the world. If I may, uh, and if I'm off, please tell me, but the the relation to that, the correlation to that whole concept here is something that uh, I think is being exposed in the military right now across the board because of the generation that we're in. But when you say go local, you know, there is a certain amount of, hey, have some damn empathy and get down on their level leaders if you want to connect with people. And if you want to motivate people and you want to move people, you have got to, it's no more. I bark my orders from the perch. I've got to go down to their level and speak to them on their level and get them motivated to come up to my level. 
Oh, man, it's that is the leadership crisis we're facing in the military right now. Thank you. Yes, it is. And, um, you know, just recently, this decision to how many recruiters was it like 700 or 800 mid-grade NCOs that were received orders on email that told them they have like 30 days to get to recruiting training. Some of them were in the box at NTC and JRTC, and they have 30 days to get to recruiting training, you know, and. I'm I'm just looking at this thinking, man, what officer in their right mind or senior enlisted advisor thought that was a good friggin' idea? You know, I mean, seriously. And and to have that level of dissonance between the leaders and the lead, I saw it with Pineapple when we abandoned our allies. The the way that generals, admirals, and sergeants major, who I knew and respected, were sitting silent. You know, while junior officers and NCOs were taking leave to try to work their guys getting out, their partners, and then these same senior officers were making phone calls on their personal cells to me and other guys that stood up groups going, hey, man, can you get my guy out? Uh, it's 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 a problem. Like, I, I I think it runs deep. There's a lot of things that... I think contribute to it. But what I will just say is your point about the dissonance between the leaders and the lead. Uh, it is absolutely uh, part of, of the issue with, with our modern military for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I see it routinely. I mean, I've even seen it in the guard. It's, just, it's equally as bad. I mean, it's not, it's not a, a, you know, compo thing. It's not a, it's, it's a human individual thing. Yeah. And yeah. too many people who wear too much rank in the middle of their chest um, have forgotten what, where they came from and who they were when they were younger uh, and, and forgot how to relate to people because they've been so coddled and so served and nobody ever gets in a room and tells them, no, please justify your position, sir or ma'am, because I don't think this is a good idea. No one ever says that because, well, you can't say that in a room with those people because what happens? You're the one who gets ostracized. You're the one who gets gets uh you know excommunicated from the inner circle and and uh the voice of dissonance doesn't exist in that room and that's a problem because groupthink proceeds and persists and you know we end up having leaders who just do and no one says anything to their face and they muddle it under their breath and oh, that's a bad idea and we execute orders we don't want to believe in and we've just lost the ability to communicate with people on a human level what do, uh, what, do, what do you attribute that to well i mean you're still in what do you think I think it comes from from multiple different things. Um, one, I think that there clearly is a generational gap that, that the, the younger people are just they're they're conditioned differently. They're you know I, I I grew up in a world with a rotary phone. Like I grew up in a world where you know there was only one TV. Like I, I'm not old per se, but I'm just young enough to remember the, that that time. I grew up in a world when, when social media didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So I'm not I don't live off that as the only way I've learned to communicate. I think that is number one. I think number two, what happens is, is, you know, we all do this thing where we lament the, 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 the times that were right. Like you and I would sit there and say, that's not the army I grew up in. I've heard it from so many people getting out. It's just not the army I knew. It's not the army. Hi, newsflash. It shouldn't be the army you knew. Everything is supposed to evolve and go forward. Everything progresses. Nothing should stay stagnant. Why? Because the world around us is continually evolving. You can't stay stagnant when everything is changing. That's basic, like, combat 101. The enemy is going to change. You can't keep doing the same thing. You've got to evolve with the enemy. 
Right. Anybody who's been to combat knows that and understands it. So there is this idea that we lament what has gone on and we say we, we get lazy and go, well, this is the way I want it done. Somebody else go, go. I'll task it out and they'll go do it. This is my orders and everybody go do it. Nobody wants to sit down and explain and have conversations because it's not worth their time to invest in people. Right. It's you know, we've become disconnected. And I think I think COVID and what has gone on in our political world have, have absolutely exacerbated some of those things. Um, you know, we 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 have this we become way too litigious in the military. First of all, everything is an investigation. Everything is a, a you know, uh, cause that has to be looked at and under. I mean, yeah. the, the, the problem is, is that, again, we, we got into this pendulum effect and I could go on for hours about this, Scott. We've gotten this pendulum effect where we're going to do this, and the only way they would fix it is to swing the pendulum all the way back in the other direction. So we don't ask this side to come to the middle, and we don't ask this side to come to the middle. We just want the pendulum to swing back and forth. Uh, and and we've seeded the middle ground in favor of if you're not with me, you're against me. If you don't agree with me, you flat out disagree with me, and that's not how things are done uh, unequivocally across the board. And even the idea that the, the, the COVID vaccine went through, and this is not a political statement, but the fact that it went through with little to no resistance from the force itself speaks to the way this whole thing is being run. The evacuation of Afghanistan, not a single person in uniform has ever stood up yet to this point and said, I said no in that room. I said this is a bad idea. You want, and, and they won't, and I'm not expecting them to. And I think, I don't know him. I think the world of General Mark Milley, as, as, as a joint chief, I think he's an excellent leader. I think what happened to him was one of the greater travesties to people in our military, the way he was excoriated in the media for the things that he did. But still, I would love to know when he puts his head on his pillows at night, when it comes to that, that withdrawal, if he ever went in the room and said, Mr. President, this is a bad idea. Don't do it. Now, again, we follow the orders that people were given, right? We follow the orders of, because that's part of our oath. I will follow the orders of the officers appointed over me and the president of the United States. It's part of our oath. And that's okay that it's part of our oath. But at the end of the day, the point simply is, is that someone in that room should have had some dissidence and said no. Yeah. And the fact that nobody has stepped up to say it leads me to believe that nobody said no in that room. When we all knew it didn't, you could have been a second lieutenant fresh out of ROTC and just taken classes and realized that this was not going to work the way you thought it was. Yeah. And you got every sign toward it. So, again, I, I'm sorry I went on so long. I, this isn't my show. It's your show. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate the. It helps me, too, though, getting that perspective. And, you know, with you being in, still in especially. But I, I think a couple of points that you made that I'll just build on quickly is, um, you know, I, I, I did not see any in my in writing the book Pineapple Express. I, I, I do think there were some geos who took a stand. And uh, by that, I mean, they, right. they said this is not a good idea. And they were muzzled immediately. Uh, my position on this, and it's certainly not a unanimous position, but it's mine and I'll stand by it, is that even with that in mind, you know, we were taught, uh, we special operators and certainly Green Berets were taught that you do everything with your partner force, right? You are held accountable for how they perform on the battlefield as a combat advisor. You are to eat where they eat, sleep where they sleep. For foreign internal defenses. That's what it is. And, and unconventional warfare, both. And, 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 and we were held to that account for 20 years. You know, you were, everything was Shona Bashona, you know, uh, Dari for shoulder to shoulder. And then all of these geos and admirals and policymakers were, were spouting that at every congressional hearing. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, the decision is made to abandon, literally abandon, for example, 30,000 commandos who, you know, are going to be targeted. 
who you've taken away their contract support in the middle of the night. They don't have anything flying. They have no medevac. They have no precision fires. We trained them to operate with medevac and precision fires. We built them in our own image. And then we pulled that support without any warning in the middle of the summer, in the middle of a battle and left them to basically ground maneuver and, and then said they didn't fight. You know, that kind of thing to me, when I grew up hearing the polar opposite by the very generals and admirals that were sitting silent is an immoral act. Yes. And I'm pretty sure that I was trained that when you are given an order that is immoral, you don't follow not just illegal, you don't follow it. And, and, and that's where I am very, very disillusioned with the senior leadership realm right now across diplomatic security and yes, political lines, because this was an immoral act. It was a systemic abandonment of a 20 year ally where they had no recourse to sustain themselves and no warning. And to do that wholesale and then to look at our troops and, and, and act like it didn't happen. Like when they came back from, from H Kaya in Kabul in the 82nd, you didn't talk about this. I've interviewed the white devils that were there. I've talked to them. These guys are suffering from massive moral injury of what they saw for 10 days on that gate with moms holding their babies up and little girls getting trampled. They didn't have any conversations when they got home. Same with the Marines. You dust your kid off and you get back to it. This shit never happened. And, you know, to this day in, in the, in the big, in the big headquarters at Bragg for army special ops and special forces command, there's been no, no holistic deep level after action review on Afghanistan or the withdrawal. Um, And, and that to me, Mark, that is wrong. Like that goes against everything I was taught. Would it surprise you if they were given an order not to do it? Because it wouldn't me. Not because at all. We are more concerned about the cover-up than the crime. Not, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all. No, it wouldn't saying. surprise me at all. And, and that's why I am so vocal about this um, now in, in my book, but also in my congressional testimony and everything else. Because the way I feel about it is, okay, we have just kicked the can down the road. We have built a multi-generational habit uh, of partner abandonment all the way back to the Montagnards. So the next generation of Green Berets, the next generation of infantrymen, when they go back into Afghanistan, and we are going to go back into Afghanistan, they're going to inherit not not the, 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 the herders and horsemen of the Northern Alliance that are anxiously waiting their arrival. They're going to have a pissed off commando in tattered rags with a tricked out carbine who's got an axe to grind. That's what our young fighters are going to inherit when they go back. And, and that, to me, is, is so wrong. And, and and just so systemically immoral. Sorry. No, again, I, I listen, I, you're not going to get an argument from me. I, I, like I said, it's probably a whole different podcast altogether. Um, but, you know, I, I think in the big picture, you know, we are we are losing our grip on leadership uh, in the military. We don't have a recruiting crisis. We have a leadership crisis. And yeah. this is hard because in reality. And you and I know this, you know this better than I do. I was only attached with SF with fifth group and 10th group. But, you know, you can do more with less. You get the right people. You can easily do more with less. We never needed 140,000 troops on the ground in Iraq right. ever. We never needed that. We wanted it because generals thought, you know, hey, I'd rather have and not need than yeah. need to have. But anyway, um, you know, you can do more with less. So I don't think there's a recruiting crisis. I think there's a leadership crisis. 
I, I think we people are literally in uniform watching this organization change in front of their eyes, and no one is providing a solution. Everyone is just going along to get along. And the leadership at the very top, and I've said this for years, Scott, and I've said it in front of my formations. I've said it every change of command ceremony, and I'll continue to say it. Whatever the leadership puts out, subordinates will magnify and multiply. And what I mean by that is whatever vibe that leadership is giving, when they magnify it, they'll do it bigger. And when they multiply it because they touch more people at their level, they will reach more people at their level. That's the problem with the pyramid of leadership, right? At the bottom, there's more people. So they'll do it bigger and better. And they'll do it to more people. So whatever you're putting out, if that's bad stuff, it's going to get doubly as bad at the bottom. And and I, I think that is what we're seeing right now happen right in front of us. Wow. I, I think that's right. I mean, the the look at the, the the numbers when it comes to legacy recruits, right, that are coming in, that their parents were in the military, their yeah. uncle was in the military. That's gone way down. And you got the Secretary of the Army saying, well, you know what, we're going to get away from the warrior cast and we're going to find a new. Really? Uh, yeah. You're, oh. we're gonna, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're a warrior cast, my friend. Like uh, these, 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 these legacy, that until now. <laughs> this legacy service that, you know, uh, has been a huge part of our volunteer military. If you look at the new recruiting strategy, it's been dismissed, man. It's, 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 it's been, it's been in my assessment, it's just been blanketed over, you know, here's the problem. The problem is, is you're taking somebody who's a secretary of the army who's 60 years old and trying to, or seven, however old she is respectfully. I don't know how, I don't know her age, but I know she's not a millennial and you're trying to get them to talk to people that they don't talk to on a regular basis. Yeah. Right. We have a communication problem. And trying to fit that square peg into a round hole is part of the recruiting issue because you're, 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 trying, you're taking people who grew up in a different army, a different time, in a different realm, and trying to get them to talk to people who are motivated by different things now. It's not the same. Again, not my army, not the army I grew up in. Good. It shouldn't be. But we all need to start to evolve. And the only way, Scott, you're able to relate to those people is to get down to their level and have conversations with them. You can't be a GO and understand a private today unless you spend some quality time with them and understand what they need. And I'm not talking about a sensing session. I'm not talking about a climate command climate survey. I'm talking about just going there to sit down and have conversations with them that extend beyond the, I'm coming to watch you in the training and have lunch with your soldiers. Because that's an empty platitude BS. Like, it actually, is. get down there. How's your family? Where are you from? How can I help you? Do I know you beyond the name and the rank that are on the, the, the front of your uniform? I see that same thing in corporate America, too. I do a lot of work in corporate America, and I see the same thing where, you know, leaders are not walking the halls. They're not engaging with their people. They're not, you know, they're not down there with them uh, because they value them. Right. It's a it's, it's it's a token gesture every time they do it. And people know it. People, you know, we we are humans are primal creatures. We've been around in modern form for 250,000 years and we can smell when someone is authentic and when they're not, you know, and and this is what baffles me about leadership, whether it's in uniform or out, is that how you can actually think that that is uh, effective is beyond me. All right. We have a tangent here. Let's uh, (laughs) this all started from Panama. How the hell did we cover all this ground just off? Well, because I asked you what what stuck with you. And and this was a big part of it. Um, And and the fact that you're still preaching it all these years later, I think, is evidence as to why it stuck with you. And, um, you know, I go home. Listen, I I don't think I don't think 
anything about that conversation was wrong, but I just kind of wanted to. That was just I, funny. I, probably an t- entirely different podcast, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Have, me, have me at your next leadership conference. I'll, I'll, I'll be a guest on stage and we can, we can wax philosophical in front of people. You got it. Um, all right. So Panama's over. Then you decide to go to assessment and selection, right? Yeah. Okay. Assessment and selection back then, a little bit different than it is now, I think, right? If I remember correctly. Um, yeah, but it's evolved. Going into that, what were you thinking and feeling? How prepared were you? Totally different than Ranger School. Uh, for selection, for selection, I, I had trained really, really hard. I, in my last year in Panama, I was in a special ops support unit, and it was all seventh group NCOs. I was their class A purchasing officer. I'd travel down range with these guys and I was completely corrupted. Uh, and they allowed me to train hard for selection and they were very involved in my training. So by the time I got to selection, I was ready. I, I knew what I was getting into. I knew what I was, it doesn't mean it was easy. And I certainly had my challenges, but I had trained so hard. And for me, Mark, this was not going to a school to get a tab. This was starting the life I had wanted since I was 14. And I, and I really felt that way in my heart. Uh, so, so like even on some of the craziest events, the team week, pushing the Jeep and things like that, I just kept saying to myself, I actually cannot believe I'm here. Like it has been so long. I can't believe I'm here. And that was different. I didn't ever have that feeling again, except maybe a little bit in the Q course, but um, so it was different. It was very physically demanding. I did not feel the same mental anguish that I felt in Ranger school. Didn't get a roadkill, did you? No. Okay. All right. No, but that, you know, they happened all around you and you were like, well, am I next? And, and, but really for the most part, again, I just, maybe it was just complete naivety, but uh, I honestly felt like I was supposed to be there. No, look, I, I mean, there's nothing better than manifesting your own destiny, right? I mean, that's, you know, whenever you have a dream and you actually live it out and fulfill it, you know, and that's, that's part of the pinch me. I can't believe I'm actually here. I'm doing like, this is what I've wanted to do. And I'm actually here. I Uh, was able to, yeah, I was able to tell my three boys at my retirement in 2013. um, I had a lot of my buddies sitting out there that were wounded and former teammates and my wife and my mom and dad, I was able to look at my three boys and I said to them, you know, um, I was able to live a life, a dream that I had as a 14 year old kid. And it was actually better than when I dreamed it. And I said, I, I pray that right. you guys have the opportunity to do that in your life. And it was, and that's the honest to God truth. That's just awesome to hear. Like that's, you know, good for you. Congratulations. God bless you. That is, that, that is the, the that warms the heart, right? Um, not many people get to say that in life. Uh, and those who do are truly happy. So good for you. Now, when you finish um, selection and you go through the Q course, when are you done with the Q course? Like time, year, month? Where are we in? in, in- 96, I think. End of 96. I get sent down yeah. to, um, yeah. Uh, but I had already spoke Spanish, so I got, it was a double-edged sword. I got seventh group, mm-hmm. but there was a bit of a shooting war going on between Peru and Ecuador at the time. And they need, they had a border uh, uh, interjection so I didn't get a team. I got thrown my ass thrown on an airplane like two days after graduation wow. uh, down to this operation called Safe Border in the Sanapa Valley, uh, like Jurassic Park uh, between the Peruvians and the Ecuadorians as, as a cherry captain. And that was my first deployment for six months, man. Um, so it went fast. Like as soon as I got out of the Q course, I didn't even go to language school. I was downrange. Pretty awesome. When do you finally get back and get a team? 
Uh, I got back six months later. So like 97, I picked up my team. Um, it was amazing. This was back. SF changed a lot. You know, there, the team sergeant had been in seventh group for 19 years. He was an SF baby. The assistant team sergeant, same. The warrant officer had been in for 16 years, all seventh group. I was the youngest guy on the team and I was the detachment commander. And um, all of these guys had years and years and years and years work in South America, the Andean Ridge, the El Salvador campaign. And I got assigned to these dudes I, on 726. And it was the coolest experience of my life because they were amazing. They were pros. Um, and they had so much experience and so many relationships, Mark. When we would go down range, that was the part that really stuck with me was these guys knew everybody. Let me ask you kind of on the flip side, you know, when we talked about leaders and, and reaching down and empathy and everything else, what was it like bridging that gap from those older guys to you, the younger guys, and how much did they reach down and, you know, communicate with you on that level? I was terrified, but my, you know, so I was terrified. I was intimidated and I was trying to act like I wasn't, which you know what I'm talking about. Like that mm-hmm. never really works that well. No. Um, but my team sergeant, Mike, was so good and he was just so strategically minded. And I know I'm super biased on this, but I think SF and soft NCOs are just incredible. Um, not that our uh, big army NCOs aren't, they are. But this guy was so mindful of, of our mission and what we were doing and how important it was that I was brought along in a very, very constructive, effective way. We had a deployment to Columbia coming up in like three weeks. Um, and so he had this whole plan put together and it was in terms, I've, I've been brought onto new units a lot. That was probably the most amazing, uh, seamless transition I ever had. Um, and I was never made to feel like, you know, young captain t- rucksack out in the hall or any of that crap. Like you hear, there was none of that. And if Mike saw it, he would squash it. Um, he wouldn't even, he allowed none of that everybody's job was to get me up to speed as fast as possible so that I could perform my duties as detachment commander and they could do their damn jobs because they had been doing mine for a while. All right. So uh, you're, this is, you're going to be your first taste of, you know, cause I, I was thinking that, look, you, you have this, this whole time before nine 11 uh, where, you know, legitimate combat starts, but on one hand, I assume that it's also probably good to give you a chance to get up to speed, but you're now going into Columbia um, to, to do a, a, a deployment there, um, kind of give me the background of what that mission was about. A very sporty mission. I mean, Columbia in the nineties was, uh, a really, you know, interesting place. The whole Andean Ridge was, and, um, you know, Pablo Escobar had just been killed. So you had, um, you had this, uh, dissolving of, of the cartel dominance and you had this migration of the FARC. Uh, which was the largest insurgency in the country, 50 years old at that time. Uh, they had a demilitarized zone the, the size of Switzerland. It was called the Despeje. And they were getting into the narco game. So you had this 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 convergence of of narco terrorism and insurgency. And, you know, it really honestly prepared me, I felt like, a lot for Afghanistan. I didn't know it at the time. Um, but it was a very, very dynamic environment. Um, we worked in the embassy, but we also attached ourselves to Colombian police, Colombian Fuerzas Especiales, Lanceros. And so you spent a lot of time with them, you know, uh, combat advising, although they were very proficient. Um, and so there was this, this mixture of working at the policy strategy level in the embassy, Colombian Pentagon, but also down at the tactical level 
with the units conducting combat operations and Bogota and these other outlying areas were extremely dangerous places. Uh, and we were living off post. There were bombings all the time. So it was a real eye opener for me as a young captain in terms of force protection and thinking about, you know, um, how I did my job and my team and keeping my team safe. And um, uh, it was like drinking from a friggin' fire hose, man. Yeah. So uh, was there any actual legitimate combat experience for you there? I mean, not if you were to lay that up against Afghanistan. No. Right. It's different. Sure. But yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I mean, for example, we uh, we were uh, a couple of my guys were hit with a grenade attack in, in uh, the Zona Rosa. I mean, literally like feet away. And it was intended for an embassy employee. But, you know, we were there um, and it was it was the closest I ever had a grenade go off to me. And it wasn't in Afghanistan. It was in, it was in the Zona Rosa in Colombia. So, you know, to that degree, there was, um, you know, but again, it just was, it was not as hot uh, or as intimate as the situations were in Afghanistan, but yes, it was. uh, And at the time it was considered a, um, either a conflict zone or a combat zone. Um, And there was hazardous hazardous fire pay and all that stuff. But it was it was very different, man, from um, and plus you were dealing also you were dealing with really a, a military that was pretty darn proficient. Um, and, you know, well, uh, practice at it <laughs> 50 years. Right. Yeah. So it's not, uh, you know, they had a lot of practice at organized fighting, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, you get back from there. I, I don't want to fast forward too far if I miss anything. But nine uh, eleven up next. Where are you and, and what do you remember? Uh, I was a company commander in seventh group. I remember I was at Bragg and we were, we were actually heading to make a, we were going to Fort Pickett and uh, to do some training. And we heard it on talk radio that there'd been an attack. We turned around and had to park our car outside of Bragg and walk onto Bragg because they had shut everything down. down, Uh, That's what I remember. All these red and green berets walking for miles (laughs) to get on base and I'm thinking, well, this isn't a good start to the war, you know, um, <laughs> but that's just how off guard everyone was caught. You know, did you think you were going somewhere immediately? No. Why not? No, because I mean, not your area, not your AO, right? Not your exactly. Area it's, it's not, you it's not, it's, it's, it's not, everybody hoped they were because everybody wanted to go get some payback um, in a very, very big way. That's how I felt. My my ranger buddy Cliff had been killed in the Pentagon, um, and I just learned about that. And that was all I was thinking about is I just wanted to go kill as many Al Qaeda and Taliban as I possibly could. Um, all that by with and through stuff kind of was out the window for me at that time. And and but at the same time, I knew there's no way. I mean, fifth group, then third group, and and in fact, seventh group was at first placed on the strategic reserve. Um, and that meant we were doing basically, you know, Colombia and Andean Ridge stuff and other places that the other groups that had been apportioned to Afghanistan uh, and then Iraq kicked. And I don't think we got in the game until 04 was the first. And you guys were, went up north, think, right? We were all over. I mean, the yeah. first time I went in, we were in the south, the west and the east. Um, we ran the Jesotif. So this was 04. And there had been some other seventh group teams had gone in with third group and 20th group uh, it, prior to that. But the first battalion deployment of uh, SF, I think, was like 03, 04. Yeah, I mean, I, I got there in 05 with fifth group. 
I was there for second bat, fifth group, or I was there for actually, I got their 10th group was there. Correct me. 10th group was there. Third bat, 10th group. Then I went to second bat, fifth group, and then second bat, 10th group. Um, fifth and 10th were rotating in and out of Baghdad at the. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, and- I they had other groups up North and up South that, you know, that one, one group couldn't handle all of it. It was too much at that point in time. Yeah, so it ultimately settled in, right, which at this long war, if you think yeah. about the insanity of this, five groups are supposed to be geographically apportioned globally. Uh, you had four of the five active duty groups were committed to Iraq and Afghanistan for damn near 15 years. And you had, you know, uh, you had third and seventh, you know, settling into Afghanistan. And then you had fifth and 10th uh, with Iraq. And then you had 19th and 20th you know, getting after it all the time as well. And uh, I remember one of my, my commanders, he said, Scotty, you know, and this was early in the war. Once we had started going over there, he said, there's two phases in your life. Now you are either in Afghanistan or you're getting ready to go back. And he was spot on that became, that became our life. Let's go back to your first deployment into Afghanistan. Um, Where are you going? What are you told? What do you know you're doing at this point in time? Because you know, uh, early the, the early part, of, particularly the Afghanistan war, the early part was much different. Then there was this long lull for a 10, 12-year period, and then the end got even worse. Right. Uh, I, my first time in was 04. I was the battalion three. Okay. So I was going to be the, the operations center director for all operations in the south and the west. Um, and that included the other special ops teams that were part of our uh, at what they called an FOB at the time and it transitioned to a SOTA special operations task force. And it was an interesting time because we were coming in, we're coming in on the hills, of third group who had done a magnificent job of working with the militia and the local, uh, you know, remnants of the original clans and tribes that had been mobilized by fifth group. But there was this push, this drive to uh, institutionalize the, def- the security forces uh, into, you know, uniformed forces not just police but also military and so when we got there the afghan national army mark was just getting fielded at a level that you would say you know we're we're starting to become combat capable and so our the the primary focus of my first deployment was to put the sf and ana together and fighting out in these uh, vast rural areas beyond the paved roads what is the operational tempo like at that point in time? Because again, you know, th- that's three years old and literally after all the major bombing and everything had started, it, it died down pretty quick by 04 for the most part. It it did and it didn't. So the, the die down part, I would say, if you wanted to call it that, when after you had the displacement of Al Qaeda and the Taliban in the, in the first 90 days of OEF one, right. When fifth group went in the horse soldiers and all that, you, you had, yep. You had a you had a real significant displacement of both insurgents and global jihadists. They they left. They went to Pakistan, and I think where and there was a lull as a result of that. And then you had this influx of conventional forces that basically said we're going to do counterinsurgency, you know, circa Vietnam. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, and coin. I still want another guy who coined that phrase in the Pentagon. Oh man! And yeah, so we. Yeah, so we plopped down in these big bases, um, you know, Bagram or ex-Soviet bases. That probably should have been a clue as well. Um, and when we got there in 04, what we started to see was the return 
of the Taliban from their uh, safe haven sanctuaries in Pakistan. And they were reconnecting with locals. They were reconnecting with villagers. They were establishing shadow courts to resolve disputes. They were basically using the narrative of an occupation force now as a way to reestablish themselves. And then by 05, you started this, we saw the first suicide bomber. And I'll never forget it. We had a suicide bombing go off somewhere on Ring Road. And I looked over at my battalion commander and I said, this shit just fucking changed. Um, because the you know po- most of the Taliban are Pashtun tribes. Typically, tribes do not commit suicide in warfare. It's it's just a it's a status society tribal thing. They don't. But there had been a migration. We had heard about this migration that was possibly coming, and there was now this migration of suicide bombings that was starting to happen. And you could watch it start to light up like a Christmas tree on the sit map. And that's when 0405, man, that's when the war, in my assessment, went from that law period back into a full-fledged, straight-up insurgency. This is a point. Were you there in April 04 when Tillman was killed? No, I got there okay. just after Pat was killed. I was just curious about the what, what was going on on the ground and what the talk was. I mean, you and that, and that Jasotov would have had eyes on all the special operations movement at that point in time. So I didn't know if they, they, had, they had intersected. And I... You know, just as a point of reference, I was just curious about that. But moving on. Um, So that deployment ends. um, Are you like you said, are you now thinking like, hey, I'm just going to keep repeating this cycle over and over again? I I left that deployment feeling pretty good about what was going on, because I I, I, what I when we left, you were seeing a, a real emergence of the Afghan National Army up to core level. You were seeing um an integration of those guys into operations. And I thought, well, shit, we're going to be doing FID foreign internal defense in this country a long time. But as we learned in Columbia, you don't need a hundred thousand dudes to do FID, you know, a couple hundred, a couple, you know, maybe a couple thousand to do FID in that country. But that's kind of where my head was when I left. And then I turned, I got on a plane and came right back over as the group three, um, like with less than six months, I was back over there again for, you know, almost a year. And it was, to me, it was a bit different. It seemed like the, uh, it had kind of gone back to more of a unilateral focus. We were, it was more about scalps on the barn and walking the enemy down. And there was a lot of briefings on, you know, body count. I'm like, body count, like what, you know, and, and, uh, but it was, and, and this, this, you know, kept hearing that the Taliban were fractured this was 06, 07. Um, but when I left that deployment in at the end of, of that deployment, there were more Taliban in the rural areas than when we had started this whole thing. Oh yeah. God. And, they had, they, they had, and yeah. God, and that's I, when I was like, man, something's wrong here. Well, the one benefit, and I've said this repeatedly that the Taliban have, and in fact, every other military, most of the militaries in the world have, they're not on a timeline. We're the only military who really gives a rip about timelines. They'll wait. They'll wait. They'll wait. They don't care if they reconstitute next week, next month, next year, next two years. They'll wait. They'll get around to it eventually. They're not. They're not hammered on a timeline like we are. So, yeah. um, in, in my that play, time, three four years, right? They were able to reconstitute whatever they needed to do to be as deep in the valleys and the, and the villages and everything else that we were not prepared for. Yeah. And, you know, every administration, I think, you know, if you look at Colombia, that was one of the things I always kind of harped on. If you looked at Colombia, you had Democratic, Republican presidents that came and went. 
in the United States, but they always built on what was going on in Colombia in an incremental fashion. So you had a 50 year campaign in Colombia of foreign internal defense that you, you kind of had supported by both Democrats and Republicans because they understood at a macro level that you just need to move the ball five yards down the field each time, right? Don't, un, don't go back and undo 20 years of work so that you can win it on your watch. I mean, that's complete horseshit. Like no one does that, but that's what we did in Afghanistan. You had each administration trying to win it on their watch. Um, so they would go back in and they would undo policies and, and procedures that were in place. And then I also think you had a lot of, frankly, I'm, you know, I'll just say it, a lot of general officers, sergeants, majors, and admirals that were coming back and they knew, what the metrics were. And that was not what they were reporting to Congress. That was not what they were saying to the public. They were saying something entirely different. And I think the Afghanistan papers clearly shows that with public records laid out. Um, but to, you know, the one other area I will say, uh, I went back over in 2010, Mark, and we did this program called Village Stability Operations, where we basically worked by, with, and through indigenous communities to help them stand up on their own from the bottom up. And it was a very effective program that we should have done in 02 on the heels of what fifth group did. We should have put SF out in those rural areas, working with irregular forces, indigenous forces, um, and, and commandos, man. I mean, that really, that was, that was a very viable, um, application where we saw a turn in, in the Taliban. We saw a turn in their effectiveness. We saw a turn in the amount of terrain that was controlled when we re-empowered these villages to stand up on their own, uh, because that's how Afghanistan actually operates. Afghanistan is, is, is a combination of a status society and a, and a contract society. It is not, it is not a liberal democracy. It, it functions mostly off of bottom up community based tribal relations. And that is where the Taliban focused and it's really where we should have focused. Right. Well, I mean, again, the, the whole, uh, Klansmen having ultimate rule over another Klansman is, you know, part of what drives where where they are. And, and it's also part of the reason why, outside of the terrain, that you could have two clans that live a straight line distance as a crow flies a mile apart and never see each other their entire lives. Absolutely. Uh, because they keep to themselves and they own their own area and their own land and you don't go into theirs, they don't come into yours and there's no reason for them to interact. Um, yeah. Guess what? That's true in North Carolina, too. <laughs> Uh, I won't ask why, um, but, you know, uh, look, I'll say this much too, you know, while you were there um, in that 06, 07 timeframe, you know, the one thing you forgot is that, you know, we, we were trying to do this and do that and stand up, you know, the, the indigenous people and everything. Uh, we also had no idea where the hell Bin Laden was at that point in time. Were you hearing, was there any, while you were there, was there any active sort of search for Bin Laden at your guys' level? Not at our level, you know, you had a different special ops outfit right, that was sure. a national asset that was doing that. And, you know, we did some coordination with them. I have to say that the coordination between that tiered asset and uh, what they call white soft, which I hate that term, um, was not great. I mean, it was all right. Uh, it was it was it was decent. Um, but I, I think both in Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the division between, you know, the JSOC units and the other soft units at times was good, but a lot of times there was just like literally a wall between the two worlds. And I, you know, I just don't think that's a good thing. Uh, they ultimately got him and uh, it's amazing the, the number of dudes that they've rolled up. Um, but that interoperability, I wonder if in the future we could ever get better at that. I hope that we can. Um, there was good sharing of Intel. I thought 
but there was clearly a, a very clear, distinct division of labor, which is good. But I also think there were opportunities for interoperability that we missed. For example, you had SF guys um, riding on slick helicopters in broad daylight conducting raids because they couldn't get a special ops helicopter to go do a mission. Now, there's something inherently wrong with that, right? And, and, and I, I think that that hopefully emerged as a lesson learned from Afghanistan. Oh, wait, we didn't do an AAR. But if we did an after action review, that would be a good one. Yeah. Um, and not to, to, to go back to this same, you know, sort of moral sin that we've created in leaving behind our Afghan partners. Um, from the standpoint of how successful you guys, particularly in doing fit, had to be without, you know, interpreters and people who lived on the ground and wanted to work with us and everything else. I mean, you know, it's just not possible to do right. We, we, we needed them to help make us successful. And that's part of the moral injury that we've we've created. But, you know, uh, I'd just like you to expound a little bit on your experience with those folks. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I Man, I, I think you, you well, you nailed it. I, does anybody really think that in any endeavor that we're going to take on against either a near peer like China or Russia or Al Qaeda or ISIS, that we're going to fight them on our own unilaterally? It is not going to happen. We we don't we don't have the force structure for that, you know. And 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 so the only way we do is from thirty thousand feet, right? That's it. That's the only way. You know, yeah, standoff, standoff, and you know, you know as well as I do, it's as old as the board game Risk. You can't win a war unless you have boots on the ground in their backyard. So true, man. And you can go local or go home. I mean that that it particularly. You know, let's set it up this way. Let's just talk. Let's just talk violent extremists with international reach, right? So, how do they operate? Well, they like to go into places that are undergoverned and at risk, and then they establish, they set up shop, and from there they train, they plan, they prepare, they project. That's what they do. And we know for a fact that Afghanistan is a strategic safe haven. It was used for that for nine eleven, and all of the local conditions. When you have a, uh, a civil society that is damaged, like Afghanistan's was, it was damaged from 40 years of nonstop war, from the Soviet occupation, the Civil War, the Taliban, and then us. Civil society is damaged. So the Taliban can go in there and where elders and Maliks would normally resolve disputes over land and, and grazing animals, it's now being resolved by the Taliban. The Taliban are providing a necessary service at the local level. They're resolving disputes over land, which means there's no feuds, which means locals appreciate them and they're left alone to do what they do. And this is the problem, right? When you look at an enemy, you have to look at their capacity, but you also have to look at their will. And we know that groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda have an unending strategic narrative will to strike the West. And if we don't put down some kind of antibody in those local areas to make it inhospitable to them, then they will plan and project with impunity. And we're going to feel that soon. The best way that I've seen, Mark, and, and believe me, if I thought air interdiction was the way to do it, or over the horizon or whatever, I'd say it. But what I saw as the best antibody to denial of strategic safe haven to violent extremists with global reach was working by, with, and through local people to stand up on their own at a community level that would make it inhospitable to these guys because they don't want them any more than they want us there. Um, And a specially trained special operations partner force that could go in and out and do the hammer. And then maybe a small JSOC-like force that could be a U.S. hammer in extremists. That's it. 
And I, and I think that that works and it will continue to work. But if we build these partnerships over 20 years and then we bail on them with no warning and leave them to be executed, there's no way that you're going to build that kind of social capital in other countries. They watch what we're doing. You don't get like a mulligan to go into a new country and build a new partner for us. Uh, very well said. And again, that's, that's, you know, that's the whole reason those folks existed. And I'll say it one final time. and We'll move on. The, the moral sin we, we, we chose to do by leaving those folks behind is uh, something a lot of people are still struggling with. Um, and I hope it's, it's, it's really hurting our population of veterans and military yeah. families. And also, you know, it's going to follow us home. I'm telling you, there's 20 plus vet violent extremist organizations in Afghanistan operating right now. I think we're going to see, uh, through the reporting that a lot of the stuff that hit Israel from Hamas uh, originated out of Afghanistan to include weapons and equipment. And um, it's just the beginning. And, and, and if we think that we if we think that the Taliban are a responsible partner in international relations and that Afghanistan is not going to be weaponized as a safe haven, like we deserve I'm paying attention. Do. Yeah, well, that's I mean, can't be that ignorant about anything. Um, so, you know, you have all these combat deployments. I mean. For you, um, what did combat do to you in particular uh, when you look back on it? I mean, holistically, obviously, there might be, you know, specific incidents here and there that if you want to discuss, go ahead. But I'm just kind of curious, you know, for somebody who wanted to live this this Green Beret life so much. And this is an integral part of it, right? You, you, you guys are the first ones called up to the big leagues to go do jobs that not other people and other units and other military folks can do. So um, that whole experience for you, when you look back on it. I mean, to, to phrase it oddly, was that everything you thought it would be? It was uh, everything I thought it would be and nothing I expected. Um, you know, the only thing that comes to mind when you ask me that really great question is um, I said goodbye um, to so many friends that I never thought I would say goodbye to that early in their lives. And some of them, you know, they, they, they left this world doing what I asked them to do. And, you know, they did it with a smile on their face. It's my last memory of them is them walking away, you know, with a smile on their face. And I said goodbye to so many of those guys. And now that I'm back home, you know, and my oldest kids in the army and, and, and the, the guns have gone silent and, and I, I feel myself becoming an, an, an older man. Um, I, I think about those guys all the time. And I think about the fact that like, I'm still here and I still have the opportunity to do things, you know, whatever they are and, and, and to have a voice and to make an impact in the world. And for me personally, it just feels, I feel really blessed that um, I knew those men and that they are such an impact on me today that they, they inspire me to be better. And, and to try to live a life that was worthy. I know that sounds a bit cliche, but of, of what they gave up. And, and that, more than anything else, is what I came away from combat with, was the knowledge and relationships with these wonderful men and women um, who really, really have inspired me to be better, you know, because I'm still around. Is there anything you would have done different in reference to those folks who were no longer with us? I mean, is there... there... I, you know, AAR yourself, and it's not Monday morning quarterbacking. I mean, it's not, you know, yeah. 
as leaders, we're always compelled to evaluate our performance. We're always compelled to really figure out if we made a mistake and how we can improve on it next time. And I think it's a fair question to ask, and I think you understand why it's being asked. So I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, there. You know, I would have been more um, critical earlier. <laughs> yeah, I would have been more vocal um, about going local and and working with local people. We had we had guys that were out there doing it that I I could have been more vocal about defending them. Um, I certainly could have been. Um, more adamant about um, our analysis of our intelligence and, and, you know, the, the deliberate nature of our planning when, you know, I was putting guys on targets, you know, I would love to go back and do that again um, and be better. Um, and, you know, I would have, um, I, I think I would have, really insisted more on a local approach. I keep going back to that, but I would have really tried to beat the drum harder on that because I think it would have been a different outcome if we had done that. I think if we had, if we had really tried to focus on almost like a Columbia type approach, um, and I'm not saying I could have influenced that because I probably couldn't have, but it would have, that's the one thing like I, I really, it haunts me uh, that I wasn't more vocal about that. And then of course, other than just the obvious you know, I uh, wish I'd have planned better. I wish I'd have led better. Um, and maybe those guys would still be here, but you know, you'll drive yourself crazy if you do that too well, long. Sure. I mean, but you know, I, I've said this hundreds of times on this show that, you know, combat is random. You could do everything right and things could still go horribly wrong and yeah, mess up beyond all belief and somehow come out without a scratch. There's no determining, there's no absolute formula for success in combat because um, the enemy always has a say. You know, the guilt is the other thing too. I would have, I would have found a way to deal with the guilt better. The guilt almost killed me. I almost took my own life in 2015 um, because of the guilt. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that it was eating me alive and I didn't even have words for it. It it was very, very dark though. And, and I still deal with guilt. Uh, I suspect I always will, but I've learned through, believe it or not, storytelling and art, how to metabolize and process guilt and, and deal with it in a healthier way. Um, but I spent a lot of years, Mark, in uniform dealing with guilt. And I think it definitely took a physical and mental toll on me. And, um, you know, I and my family. And well, I wish I had done that better. Let's stay there for a moment. Um, because I've always, you know, I've always said this, um, and you don't learn this without the benefit of hindsight. Uh, was there a point after something happened when you were downrange and you lost one of your friends? Uh, were you ever thought about taking a knee and going, you know what, I need to get away from here for a little while and, and make sure my head is clear, right? We never we never do that. What, what, you said it earlier. What do we do? Get your helmet back on, get your kit back on, and go get right back out there, right? Like that's the mentality we've been brought to believe, but – you know, in reality, uh, everything in the PTS world is compounding, mm -hmm. right? They're not separate stacks. They all just get on top of one another. And the more you stack on top of one another, the more you got to clear out to get to the bottom of it. Um, and, and it's harder to do it that way. Uh, as much as we compartmentalize well, all this stuff is still compounding. So I wonder, had you spent some more time in those moments? And I know in those moments, somebody told you, hey, Scott, listen. 
why don't you take a seat? Just take a couple of days off. You, you would have no, you would have said no. You would have resisted. You would have went right back in the fight because that's the way we're cut. You know, none of us would have done that. But in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think you could have needed that? For sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I and and I would. I didn't even have a language for that. You know, and, and none of us did. It was. It was all about um, playing your position until you couldn't play it anymore, you know, or till it was over and, and it just wasn't even talked about, you know, um, we just didn't have a grammar for it. Uh, I did get a break, um, uh, to SOCOM and then I ended up deploying from there, you know, you know, raising my hand saying, I want to go do a VSO. I'm losing it. I need to get back to the guys. And so, uh, you know, that's interesting too, right? Because like, even if we're given opportunities to, to take a knee and get our breath, a lot of times we, we, we pass on them. We, we don't take them because, you know, we, we feel, we feel guilt. We feel the need to get back in the game. I I have phrased it this way. uh, And this is probably just a soldier's mentality, but I would rather fight the enemy physically to the brink of death than fight my own thoughts to the brink of insanity. Yeah. I think that's well said. I, I think a lot of us feel that way. And we, you know, we didn't have the, the, the granularity that you just put it in, but I do, I do think we have now the benefit of 20 years of lessons learned from this. And, but what worries me, Mark, is that we turned the page, you know, it, Afghanistan was not just about turning the page on our allies. It was also on turning the page on the men and women and their families who fought this war and who, like you said, spent their whole adult life doing this. And there are so many lessons from this, so many things that we need to learn and to just dismiss them like serve pro, like it never even happened, you know, and, and, oh, well now China and Russia is the threat. Okay. Bullshit. I mean, yes, they are. But if you think that, that ISIS K and ISIS and uh, Al Qaeda are going away, like we're deluded. That, that, that's not going to happen. The enemy has a vote. And what's going to happen is I suspect is we are going to encounter another catastrophic-like attack in on our soil. And we're going to find ourselves right back in another multi-year war, you know, and, and, and will we have learned, will we have actually taken like the things you and I are talking about? You know, these are, these are not, these are not to me, high echelon, lofty, cerebral lessons. Like these are, these are things that leaders need to know and we need to, uh, integrate into how we navigate the world with our people. And I just don't know that we've learned them. Honestly, I don't know that we've crystallized them and institutionalized them for the next war, which could be literally tomorrow. You know, we're in another GWAT and I I worry much more about another GWAT than I do, um, you know, Taiwan or Ukraine. Now I'm not saying those aren't possible because they are, we know that. But when you look at will and capacity of an enemy, when you look at will and the desire to punch us in the face and draw us back in, it's, it's these violent extremist organizations with international reach. And when they do, we are going to be so pissed. Look at how Israel has responded. Like the level of emotional vengeance that you feel when that kind of horrorism is visited on your people, man. You remember, I mean, I still remember learning that Cliff had been killed in the Pentagon and it, I, to this day, I still feel it. You know? I, 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 and I look, I have no problem saying this and I don't make many political statements, but you know, I'll say this out loud. Um, cause I've said it on social media. 
there's no other justifiable position other than to back Israel. And and, and if this is Israel's 9-11. If anybody had said to us on September 12th, you might want to show a little restraint here. You're like, it's a good time to show restraint with the Taliban. We would have told them, bleep you, okay? We're going to, 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 to right. pay back who did this, and nobody's going to stop us. So right. the idea that we're telling Israel to show restraint, or anybody saying show restraint, is just insulting on its merit. Like, it, you know, you can go kiss my ass. Like, and, I, and, and ISIS and AQ and Hamas, they know this. Hezbollah yeah. knows this. You know, these organizations and nefarious states like Iran, they know this. And they know that it will be an emotional response because that that global jihad is what they want. Like these 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 actors, they want to engage at that level. Like it's part of the plan. And and we have to consider that when we think about, you know, what's next. And and I go back to what you and I were talking about. Have we really learned these lessons and have we you know inculcated them? in our force and in our community so that we don't go down another 20 year war of, you know, dudes just pushing it down and staying in the game because we don't necessarily have to do that there. We've already found some cool ways to keep guys, you know, in the, in the long game. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like there, there are so many opportunities to learn lessons from what we did. And I think there was a lot of good done in the time frame that we operated in Iraq and Afghanistan that has yet to be revealed. Agreed. Uh, I think that's fair. One more question on your guilt, as you talked about, when did you know it was as bad or you didn't know until after you attempted suicide? It, it was then it was, it was, um, I mean, I was getting, I was getting all kinds of indicators and in how I was operating around my kids, my mood swings, um, my relationship with my wife was, was erratic you know, and, and I kept telling myself, look, you didn't see anywhere near the level of combat that your brothers did that were, you know, on teams, get over it, you know, like get, you know, get what's the, what, what's wrong with you, you know? And, and it was this kind of like, like self-flagellation that I was doing, you know, uh, that made it even worse because I was, you know, the guilt and that stuff that I was feeling, I was just pressing it down and chastising myself for it. And that that didn't work at all. Uh, that just exacerbated uh, everything and made it made it worse to the point at, at some point around 2015, I just completely questioned my relevance, completely questioned my worth and my purpose. And, you know, as you know, that's not that's not good when that starts to happen. Um, I, the indicators were there, uh, but I was in such a state of maybe denial and my own stigma around feeling that way. I'd been a high performer all my life. And the fact that I was, you know, breaking down and crying over shit that did not warrant that in my opinion, or, you know, getting angry over something that my kid didn't even do, you know, what is the matter with you, dude? Like you shouldn't even be here. You don't, you don't treat people this way. And, and that's how, where my mindset went, you know, and, and, and uh, it culminated with, um, with almost checking out. Well, I'm glad you're still here. I'm glad that you, you've you persevered uh, to tell your story and continue to advise others of that path and what it may look like for them and, and how they can avoid it, because that's that, that's super important. I don't think we should underscore that in any size, way, shape, or form. Uh, that said, you did sort of channel a lot of that into a book, uh, into several books, I should say, you know, multiple different foundations um, in your own 
your own company, as well as the play that we talked about earlier. So which of these, well, before we get to these, I should, I should say all this happens after you retire. I, I, let me pause it back up. How did you know you were done after nearly 23 years? Uh, the, the, when we left the village stability program and um, basically left our tribal allies in a lurch and most of the ones I recruited were murdered um, wow. in 2012, that was when I, you know, my wife and I always had a promise to each other that when I, when I woke up and I no longer loved it, we were done. And I woke up one morning in Tampa and I looked at Monty and I said, I'm done. And I was the, I had been selected for battalion command. Uh, I had already turned down two. I'd been selected for a third and I turned it down. Uh, I went in and turned it down and I knew what that meant. And uh, the general said, you know, and with a few explicatives attached to it, it's like, you know, you, you are going to retire with prejudice or this, you know, you're, this is going to bring prejudice on you if you turn down third command. And I, you know, I was okay with that. Uh, so I retired very, they, I retired very quickly uh, after that as a Lieutenant Colonel and, and, but I knew, I, I just knew that for me, the way that had ended, I, a lot of uh, Afghans were dead because of promises that I had made to them that weren't kept. And they had experienced a level of retribution that they should never have experienced. And, and for me, I felt like this is exactly what's going to happen in Afghanistan. This is exactly what's how it's going to go down. Um, at a much larger level, and I am not going to be a part of it. And so, um, and if you don't believe that, come watch my play that was completely written before the Afghanistan collapse happened. And you'll be like, wow, you wrote that really fast after Kabul fell. And nope, it, it was written before, but it was so obvious to me where this thing was headed. And I just, I was done. I, I, I had already seen a level of leadership, senior leadership and soft that I didn't want to be a part of anymore. Um, if I made 06, what that would mean. And, and I just had no use for it. And again, I, you know, uh, I had had a great ride up to that point and I wanted to end it that way. Very self-aware of you um, to, uh, you know, um, know that, things were going down that road and you were willing to stay away from it. Um, yeah, that, that's look. Yeah. Retribution will make you self-aware. Well, I mean, it kind of just goes back to what we were, we were discussing before, you know, I mean, when you see leadership diverge from your moral compass, it's a real tough sell to stay. Cause then yeah. you have, to, you have to mortgage your own. Yeah. Equity. Yeah. Uh, you got and, that right. That is a, that is a, some people can do it easily. I can't, yeah. you know, yeah. I just had a change of command speech and, and I had no problem saying out loud to people, not everybody liked what I said, not everybody liked what I did, but I put my head on the pillow each night knowing yeah. I acted yeah. integrity. Yeah. Everything I did was in the best interest of the people I worked with, the people, yeah. me, uh, the mission and the, and the army and the guard as a whole. I, 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 I love it. Any reservations about anything that I said or did. And I don't care who pissed it off. And it look to a certain extent, it probably cost me opportunities in my career. There's no yeah. doubt about it that it did. Now, there's a fair argument to say I probably could have used a little bit more diplomatic tact, but that's never really been my way. Um, regardless of all that, I don't have any regrets about it. Same here. Right. Yeah, never same here. It, you know? Yeah. And and it, was, it, it was never difficult, Scott. No. It was never hard for me to say what I thought was right, because I just believed it. Uh 
hundred percent. And, and that's why I, you know, when pineapple happened and I was so vocal about how senior leadership responded to that, you know, and where I came from on that was I hung it up, you know, I hung it up. I was a three-time select for battalion command and I turned it down because of where shit was going. And because of what I saw around me, I was not going to be a part of that. And, you know, so I just don't have much appetite well, for, for, you know, for anyone that tells themselves, well, you know what, my job is to, is to, is to serve at the pleasure of the commander in chief or, or, you know, if I, if I retire or pr- throw my stars down every time I don't like a call, what would happen? It's like, no, 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 that's not what this was. You know, this was an immoral act. And well, no one and no one moved. And to your point, you know, and that's the other part. Uh, the fact that nobody of note resigned over the withdrawal of Afghanistan tells me a ton too, because nobody had the balls to turn around not and go, one. "It's not worth it to me anymore." Not you, one. You, you've broken my moral code, and I can't be a part of this anymore. And not only that, though, you've broken the moral code of an entire generation of young men and women who did exactly what you asked them to do. Not once, not twice, not three times, five, ten five, times. Six, seven, right. You know, and you, 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 you overtly broke the code with them. You betrayed their trust. And now they're asking themselves, you know, was it worth it? I mean, how dare you? How dare you after what they've given us and what they've put on the line for this nation to put them in a position where they ever have to ask that fucking question? That should never have happened. And 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 that should have been some senior officer that said, no, I will ask this question for you. And I will ask it right here in front of these cameras, you know, so that you don't have to ask that question. And and that's the part, Mark, I will never get over. And there are there are officers to this day who will not speak to me. They won't talk to me. I mean, my Christmas card list out of Fort Bragg has gotten real thin. Um, you know, but but the reality is, man, they know it. They have to know it is that our generation of warfighters and our families and our gold stars are all asking themselves the same question. What was the point? And that should never have happened. That should, they should have never been relegated to a position where they had to ask that question. Someone should have stood up for them. And no one did. And that's and no one did. a real problem. All right. Uh, back to you. Uh, so again, uh, operation pineapple express, um, you know, is the latest book out? Um, what made you write it? What did you want to say to people? That you know, I, I wanted people <laughs> to know. Uh, I wanted people to know uh, that when nobody else was coming, um, a group of volunteers did the best they could to um, help their allies. And frankly, I wanted to tell the allies or the story of the allies. You know, that's one thing about my book. I wrote it in the third person. It's not a first person. Okay, you memoir. This one time at band camp. Here's what the retired lieutenant colonel did like it's not that it's it's uh, i am a character in the book just like everybody else and uh i would say pretty damn flawed you know uh and i wrote it as a third person in the third person and i wanted to tell the story through the lens of the afghans and their families who were in that open sewage canal who were going through that crowd who had their child trampled and the and the friendship that existed between them and the shepherds that were, you know, their former um, partners in special forces and the seals and, 
and how that showed up in the worst of times, the worst of moments when nobody else was coming, how these friendships uh, emerged, reemerged after all these years. And there was sadness and there was pain, but there was also joy and laugh. And it just, to me, it really showed what is our veteran population is capable of in the worst of times. And I, that was the story I wanted to tell. I wanted Americans to read that and, and be angry um, at what happened, but more importantly, to look at our veterans and go, oh my God, like they are a national treasure, you know, and, and, and we, we need them in the game more doing this kind of thing. So that was for me, it was so cathartic to be able to interview and share the stories of these myriad um, special operators from both the Afghan and the, and the U S side and, and talk of their friendship. Incredible. Sounds amazing. Right. When did rooftop leadership get formed? Uh, about seven years ago, I wanted to, I looked around corporate America. I was doing some speaking. I love, I've done three Ted talks, a lot of you know, hundreds of keynote speeches. I love storytelling. That's what saved my life after that dark moment in the closet was learning how to tell my story. And I thought, man, if I could, you know, I looked at all the kind of churn that's happening in the world with the way people are disengaged and, and the leader problem is very prominent in the corporate world, retention issues. And I thought, man, we were pretty good at that in the special forces of going into these rough uh, trust depleted areas and building rapport, telling stories, active listening, all of those, those interpersonal skills. What if I could parlay that into a skill set here in the United States and the West? What if I could teach leaders how to go into a low trust environment and with cognizant skill, use narrative and active listening and, and rapport building as a way to build social capital inside and outside their company? And man, what a ride that's been. That's been just the greatest experience because I get to tell all the stories of my guys and those team sergeants that taught me all this stuff and, and work on the soft skills as they call them. I hate that term. I think soft skills really are the hard skills today. Um, but, but to work on those and it's, it's not um, what the stuff that I teach is the, is the stuff that's kind of below the waterline. It's, it's, the, it's the stuff that, you know, we all try to do on instinct and really instinct these days isn't enough. The trust is so bad. We have to be intentional and deliberate about how we listen, how we tell stories. So that's been my, really my gig uh, for the last seven years, Mark. Um, and I know you have as well, um, you know, uh, 501c3 Task Force Pineapple Operation Pineapple Express Relief, still mm -hmm. advocating in Congress um, for the resettlement of the Afghan allies. Is that still going on? To some degree, most of the um, most of the advocacy now has switched to how this has impacted our, our veteran population. Um, so Operation Pineapple Express Relief exists as kind of a, a sustainment fund. If we have an Afghan commando whose daughter gets sick and he can't go get medical care in Afghanistan, we can help. Um, you know, it's kind of an episodic relief fund. If we have a family over here in the United States that is struggling to find work, you know, we can help them. Um, the, the real work that I've settled into is the second 501c3, which is the hero's journey. And, and we're really focused on using storytelling uh, as a way to heal from the moral injury and mental health challenges that our veterans and families are feeling. And also informing civilians on the world you and I lived in and so that they better understand it. Uh, and they understand it's not a Fortnite game, you know, that like there is a real cost and impact here that I want them to feel emotionally. Um, that's why the play is, is so big. So, uh, Operation Pineapple Express Relief still exists. We're still doing it. We'll always do it. But the real effort right now is on veterans and moral injury.
how does the storytelling in the hero's journey this is how does the storytelling get people to transition better i mean look right. we relate right like i mean look this podcast tells stories right we all relate in some size way shape or form mm-hmm. but what specifically in your opinion is the is the big connection point two levels one is um there's a there's a self-healing level with storytelling so civil societies for thousands and thousands and thousands of years have used storytelling as a way to bring warriors back into civil society. It was usually around a fire pit and the veterans, the warriors would tell stories about their experiences in combat and the the, the audience would sit there and there would be a re- redistribution of the emotional load from the shoulders of the warrior onto the broader shoulders of the community. That's what we've literally been doing for 70,000 years everywhere. The United States is one of the few countries in the world that does not do that. So there is a communal, primal, biological aspect, sociological aspect to storytelling as a way to reintegrate the warrior back into civil society. It also, we know uh, in trauma and extreme grief, it also um, unites the two hemispheres and it helps break the trauma loop. It helps make meaning out of a lived experience that has become like a very isolated moment. You know, it allows you to bring broader context. A lot of your protocols today are using various forms of narrative to heal the brain. Um, so there is a, a, a healing component to it that's very natural. And finally, um, and this is what I love about it, I call it the generosity of scars. But you can take your struggles, the stuff that, you know, whatever it was, whether it was your, you know, a, a time in combat where you, 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 you lost a buddy or uh, you made a mistake or perhaps your mental health journey like mine in the United States with suicide, you can repurpose your struggle in a narrative in storytelling. And what will happen is the listener is listening to that. And because they are going through their own versions of struggle, um, they locate themselves in that story. It's called narrative transportation. And they, and they start to make sense of their own lived experience in the safety of your story. And it's one of the most generous things I think veterans can do as we come home is we can actually put our stories of trauma and loss and pain and struggle into the service of others and whether they served in the military or not, I've built a whole business around it. I mean, and the reality is people locate themselves in your stories, particularly when they're struggle and they make meaning out of their own lived experience. And that creates reciprocity and shared perspective and all kinds of opportunities now for the veteran to be relevant in this new world that they're in. I call it narrative competence. Powerful stuff. I mean, it really is. Um, and it absolutely, you know, um, that connective tissue is so important, right? Yeah. Like it really is. I, I think a lot of us, when we transition out, you know, you're still looking for that same platoon, that same squad, that same company, that same group, you know, that uh, to a certain extent, you know, always is there for you. Uh, and you're part yeah. of something bigger than yourself. That's, that's what I think you miss. You know, we've been so conditioned for five, whether it's four years, eight years, 10, 20 years, you do it for everybody else. And then when you have to just do for yourself or your family, that doesn't seem like it's enough. And that's always a weird pivot. It, it really is. And I believe that when warriors and military families and first responders can realign their lived experience with their narrative, their is a universal alignment that happens in the body, in the instrument. And I see it all the time. I've trained, I don't even know how many gold star widows, kids who've lost mom and dad to suicide or mom or dad. 
uh, buddies who lost buddies and, and we work on their stories and these generosity of scars workshops that we do, Mark. And man, when they tell their story and it finally gets out of their throat, cause it's stuck in their throat. And we have a therapist right there on hand that's helping them breathe. And that story makes its way out of their throat and into the world and the snot's flying and, and, you know, they're, but they, they get that story out into the world and you can just, you can just feel the, the metabolization that has happened. And, and they, and they start to make sense of, make meaning out of that, that thing that made no sense. Uh, and it's, it's hard to explain, but I've seen it so many times that I've come to just trust it. And I know that my message to anybody listening to this is no matter what you've been through in your life, no matter how bad, how dark, um, that is probably the very story that somebody needs to hear right now to save their life. One more here. Uh, I know you got two children's books out there as well. Yeah. Yeah. But the same approach. I mean, think about what our kids go through, our military kids. Uh, my wife and I wrote mommy keeps us free and daddy keeps us free back in Oh four Oh five, because our little boys were going through, you know, we were asking a lot of them, you know, we were yeah. I was, dad's gone. And what I was in awe of was my wife, Monty's ability to make them feel part of the mission. Um, she made them feel part of my absence and, and that was writing letters or however they could be involved and, and feel like they were part of it, not just something that they inherited. Um, and we thought, wow, there's nothing out there for parents who are dealing with these deployments. What if we, what if we wrote a, a kid's book where, you know, the kid's the hero and he, he, we make him the hero in this thing. And, and, um, that's what we did. And, and it, um, we did it ourselves at the time. We, 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 our little nonprofit was, was barely functioning, but we, we've since, you know, those things have gone to family readiness groups. And I mean, it's, uh, it's been really neat to see the number of parents, um, that have benefited from that little book and, uh, it's what 15, 16 years ago, uh, but it's still out there. Mommy keeps us free. Daddy keeps us free. If you guys want to check it out, that's uh, pretty, pretty amazing to say the least. Well, uh, I know you've got a lot on your plate uh, and the speaking circuit continues. I know you were down in my neck of the woods a week or two ago uh, speaking here in Atlanta. Um, yeah. Sorry, I missed you. I was not aware that you were coming. Otherwise, I would have uh, made a point to have been front row. Well, we'll, we'll make it happen, Mark. I really am glad we're connected and we're going to try to bring the play to Atlanta in 2024. And oh, I would love, I would love to have you as my guest. Uh, yeah. Outstanding Fox theater, baby. That's the way to go right now, uh, right in midtown Atlanta. But look, I mean, you guys, if you want more information on Scott, again, scottman.com uh, is where you go. Um, it's everything is there, your books and all your information about the plays, pineapple express and everything you've been doing. Of course, you know, if you want to get Scott for a speaking engagement or whatever, that's all available there on uh, scottmanman.com as well. Look, I wish you nothing but a continued success. It's great to connect with you. I really do appreciate your time. I know how precious it is. And I, I, there was a lot of value in this conversation. And that, that leadership portion of it, uh, let's not underscore the importance of that because that really, you know, um, it's our way out. It's our way forward. And uh, I just hope uh, hope the right people recognize it. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm at the tail end here. I'm, I'm teeing off on the 18th uh on the 18th here on my career. So I ain't got much time left, um, you know, but. Well, well you, you do and you don't, because I have a feeling, I know I'm right about this is you're going to have even more impact on the outside. Um, and the fact that you are so clear right now on what leadership looks like and doesn't look like. And the fact that you have the moral courage to be as vocal about it as you are, 
um, gives me a lot of hope for what you'll do on the outside. And I have no doubt. And I'm not just saying that. Like I, 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 I see leaders that are muzzled all the way up until the finish line. And then they struggle to find their voice when they get out. You're not going to have any trouble finding your voice because you've already found it. Yeah, I, I, I struggle to keep my voice while I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A couple of times people are like, but thank you for the kind words. I genuinely appreciate it. It's great to get to know you. I know we'll stay in touch, but again, thank you for your time, Scott, man. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. My honor. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.